Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, everyone. You're back listening to the Telegraph Rugby podcast, and we are about to do our very best to review a lively Six Nations weekend. A slight change of recording time and location this week, but the same old voices, myself, Ben Coles, and we've got one Charlie Morgan. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Colsey. And also one Charles Richardson in Lille, who is still reeling from that dramatic draw between France and Italy. Charles, is the post still shaking? from Paolo Garbisi's penalty. The post is still shaking, as are my hands, and and I don't think my heartbeat's come back down to a sort of respectable um, and safe level yet, but hopefully it will by the time we finish this recording. Is that, is that not just because your body's gone into some kind of smoke-induced reaction to the pyrotechnics at the start of the game, which took about 15 minutes to clear it? Yeah, at the start, I just had no idea what was going on. All the players looked the same. Seriously, could you not see anything? Well, no, no, no I, I could tell the players, but my vision was impaired by the smoke. In fact, I, I was trying. I, if it hadn't been so dramatic at the end, I would have got the smoke into my match report, but I've not been able to do that just because there was so much other stuff to talk about. In the end, just a minor detail. Um, so, Charles, you're in France. Charlie, where were you? I was in Edinburgh, back on the back on the red eye this morning, Sunday morning, but um, arrived Friday morning. Um, yeah, nice day there. Captain straight to the captain's runs from the airport, and then obviously a game on Saturday after a morning in and around the city. Yeah, lovely. Another lovely weekend. Can't complain. Loved your um, documentation of the uh, Murrayfield Stadium and a crushed tenants camp on the road outside. That was nice. Yeah, a little bit of colour. That was that was so that the. the um, yeah, the snap of Murrayfield was from the tram station, and then the uh, tenant was actually on the concourse. So I don't know how, don't know how it got there on the Friday Friday morning, but yeah, it's very much just a different spin on the calm before the t- storm tweets that you're uh, legally obliged to send. Captain's run just hits differently up there, I guess, and, and that's how people that's how people get through it. Um, I was in Dublin, where saw Ireland be kind of pretty comfortable and squeezed in the game of um of GAA at Croke Park as well in the evening so that was very enjoyable tell me about that atmosphere great yeah I mean yeah brilliant so Dublin against Kerry so two big hitters um actually saw a hat trick which I was with some people who go quite often and they said that is incredibly rare see one player score a hat trick of actual goals um, Conor Callahan had a great game. Didn't make the Telegraph Team of the Week for 
reasons I hope you understand. Um, but yeah, no, it was great, great atmosphere. Um, did leap out of my skin when two fireworks were let off from behind the stand that I was in during the first half. That was unexpected. Uh, but yeah, yeah, quite good, quite good to squeeze in two games in one day. Charlie, I understand you're a big Mayo fan, so I appreciate Dublin winning. Yeah, yeah. Offend you. I mean, I'm I'm very that, but I'm vicariously through. Um, a friend I used to work with, she was a long-suffering Mayo fan. They've got a curse on them or something like that. But um, and actually, I'm not sure whether I don't think they've broken it yet. Have have they? Some, something like that. They're, but she would go away to these grand finals full of hope um, on the weekend, and then sort of come back just progressively more broken, and then just work her way up to to being optimistic again by the next season. It was great, and I just feel yeah, moral support. Also, John John Mullin, one of our old editors, I think was a uh, was a Mayo fan as well. So it, as one of the yeah, I'm I'm all in. We're way off base here, but there's a photo of Harry Kane holding up a Mayo shirt on the internet and everyone assumes that this is the reason why he's not having much luck at Bayern Munich. We have digressed enormously away from the Six Nations. Can I ask you all, well, I'll ask you both for a highlight of the weekend. Charles, I'll come to you first. Um, well, it has to be Italy's length of the field, almost try that got them back in the game and finished off by, you know... The angel Capuazzo uh, in the corner. He, you know he's got form for being the hero, and he was nearly the hero again. I, I think that they will feel deflated. They certainly did feel deflated by that draw. They were very proud, but I think at that point, uh, when they scored that magnificent try with Brex and Menoncello just tearing it up, I think there was a genuine feeling and I certainly thought that they were going to go on and win that game because France were absolutely all over the shop. Charlie, what about you? What's your highlight? I'd, uh, for, just from a point of view of having sort of been around the captain's runs the previous day and obviously been around the build-up for two weeks as it was with a fellow week, Kevin Sinfield be, giving a big kind of tub thump on the uh, Tuesday, I think it was, before the game, which is quite unusual for England. That was kind of remarked upon when we got up there that England had done a fair bit of the chat as though they'd sort of lent into the underdogs and underdogs kind of tag. And clearly that had been the other way around in, in years gone by before this amazing Scotland run. With all of that context in mind, uh, Scotland's first try where they just teased England's blitz and went through the middle with Sione Tupilotu getting across uh, Ollie Lawrence to fix him and Henry Slade flying out the back to go looking for uh, for Russell and Hugh Jones taking that space. I thought that was just really clever and, and obviously at that point Scotland were 10-0 down so you thought right game on and actually that was the spark for Scotland to eventually kind of take hold of it fairly convincingly and I think they I think it will have been significant for them not because there's another win over England and those aren't rare anymore obviously because they're on a really nice run of four in a row and um, in, a, in a patch of, of getting that done but I just think to do so so convincingly as favourites, I think that's significant for them. Um, makes that non-try last week just more more gutting though, doesn't it? We're all about the good of the tournament and everything. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, that was honestly my first thought after the end of that game was how frustrating is the France game just as a whole, the fact that they, because yeah, right, it's the last decision, but they should have won that beforehand. I was was actively annoyed at Scotland for not doing that. Um, I was trying to think of a highlight myself from from Dublin, which was quite a weird day. I mean, we'll, we'll get into it just in terms of how it played out. It, if I had to pick one, it would probably be Ryan Baird 
um, just coming off the bench and just going crazy, just like making long range breaks from his own 22, making such a good break at one point that he completely outran all of his support and sort of, you know, when a horse is just doing really well in a race and just starts veering the wrong direction as it's breaking clear. It he was just getting further and further away from Gibson Park for one break and it looked hilarious as Gibson Park trying to try to beckon him back towards him for a pass. He, he was great. I thought he, I mean, Ireland are just on such a different level at the moment and we'll, I'll get into why, but yeah, he, he just came up with a, a sparkling cameo, which I, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a very, very fun performance. Anyway, Charlie, we're going to be quizzing you now because you're at Murrayfield. Scotland's fourth Calcutta Cup win in a row. And the scoreline may be, you know, maybe flattered England slightly. Let's have a chat about it. Okay, Charlie, before we chat too much England, can we just praise um, Scotland and talk about what Scotland did well? What, what did you, what were you most impressed by out of their performance? Um, I, th- I think given what we know about their back line, it wasn't necessarily surprising that they worked that first try for van der Merwe, um, and then the second two for for him also were sort of more just um, seeing space, playing space really quickly off off transition, off the off um, one of a million uh, turnovers that England coughed up in the first instance for try number two, and then secondly off that Cameron Redpath uh, break, Finn Russell, just an absolute tormentor of England seeing space. I actually think the balance of their back five impressed me the most. Um, Grant Gilchrist, Scott Cummins, really good. Really dovetailed really nicely in different ways, two different locks. Um, Grant Kilchrist was re- a real hefty nuisance around the breakdown. A lot of counter-wrecking, really cleverly timed as well. So really shunting into that those masses of bodies, just as maybe Danny Kerr was going to pass or kick, making a, making life really tough for Danny Kerr and really slowing down. And it was really interesting. I've written it in a in a piece, a kind of wrap on um, on Scotland's performance. Steve Tandy and Maratoji had a bit of a hug and a chat at the end of the game. And I remember Maratoji, and it being slightly surprising um, here, Maratoji says, Steve Tandy, working with him on 2021 Lions was awesome. I learned so much. He's such a sort of visionary about coaching defence. And um, it, it, at times, I know they can, they um, conceded 21 points, but the, I think the, the defence and the intelligence and the uh, decision making around that was was really impressive in that back row and maybe maybe above all Jack Dempsey. Um, that's what that's what kind of really 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 caught me. Yeah, Dempsey was outstanding, wasn't he? I mean, Charles, we we can't we can't not talk about Duan and and his his hat trick, the first hat trick in the championship for Scotland against England. Where does he sort of sit in the in the pecking order of, of test wings for you at the moment? At the minute, he's very, very high. Um, I think higher than his stock has risen since the World Cup. Um, and uh, a few a few of the other guys uh, have probably dropped down the pecking order a little bit. And he's very, very high. Um, I mean, just the way that he took some of the, the, those, those tries was just outstanding. And but, but I mean, just in, in terms of the bigger picture, um, the finish, the finishing was just sublime. Um, but I mean, in England, and I know we're going to come on to them, but they, they were stung by him last year. And really, it's, it's deja vu almost because one of the tries came from that, you know, fa- fabulous scrum set piece 
move that, that that Charlie's just spoken about, but two others really came from. Well, there was one majestic Finn Russell cross kick, but it came from a, a sloppy line break that where England let Cam Redpath in behind, and then it was they were chasing shadows. And another one came from a you know a, an England drop pass Furbank sort of headbutted the ball miles forward, and, and Van der Merwe's gone. And, and and really, after such a positive start. England, England were lost. They, at the start of that second half, there was a really good defensive stand from England where they kept them out after many, many phases. I think it was Sam Underhill who won, won a holding on penalty near the line. I might be wrong. Um, and then, and that felt like a big moment. That felt like a big moment. You felt there if, if Scotland had scored, then they would go on to win. England kept them out. And then a minute later, 30 seconds later, they're scoring anyway with sort of relative ease. Admittedly, with a bit of world-class fly half play from Finn Russell, but Van der Merwe is—I think we we described him at the Telegraph last year as Doohan the Destroyer after the Calcutta Cup win at Twickenham. Well, I don't think there's a there's a sort of there's a noun or a, an adjective that goes above that. He was just the destroyer again, Mark Two. Are we officially calling that George Furbank era a Falcon? Because that would excite me a lot if that's the case. Is that the official verdict? Yeah, I think so. It went miles, didn't it? It was real. Yeah. But there was, there was sort of there was a that that second twenty minutes afterwards it was the one that the players were going, yeah, geez, don't really know what happened. The England players, um, but there were some that were just even more basic than that. Like sort of first phase, trying to work just basic inside balls and just that them going down. And actually, it, it had been the weirdest thing is it had been coming against Wales. So you're like, what are they? They would have looked at the Wales game and gone, our handling on a nice day at Twickenham, fairly dry conditions was poor. Let's get better at that. It was really nice, really nice conditions at Murrayfield. I have to say Scotland, Scotland played their part at that start as well. They had a bit of a they were they were fun they were a bit fumbly. Carl Stain came in and um pick and go around the edge, dropped it. Duane van der Merwe's first touch was actually he got stripped by George Ford, I think. Um yeah, that, so things got a bit better for him. But no, it was just just yeah, alarmingly poor. That that um the, the mistake in the lead up to uh, Van der Merwe's second was really interesting because that was just when you it sounds like an excuse when you're talking about backline changes um, backline changes co- cohesion goes and therefore it's more difficult if you watch um, Slade and Furbank occupy the same space they both come round on that in that sort of pocket behind forward getting each other's way that's why Furbank's unsighted and why it hits him in the bombs but it just it looks village when it happens it really looks like a kind of um, just like what England looked like, what they are at, at times, which is a side who struggled for to keep co- to keep combinations together and build cohesion. And Scotland um, looked looked totally opposite. They looked like a settled side that have pushed through this World Cup cycle onto the next one. You don't even talk about World Cup cycles when you talk about the Scotland side because they've been settled for longer than that. So that's the difference there. Um, and yeah, and it, and it was kind of it was fairly fairly jarring. In a strange way, it was almost a good reflection of just where England are, isn't it? Because they'd had the wins over Italy and Wales and, and we kind of jokingly talked about it at the end of the last podcast, didn't we, where we said, well, listen, if they win at Murrayfield, then all of a sudden they're three from three and, and you know, people start start to raise their eyebrows. I, I think the, I watched the game back this morning on my, on my flight back. The catalogue of catalogue of individual errors errors that you've touched on already Charlie is quite extraordinary you can understand it a bit more I guess in the second half when they're sort of chasing the game and the scoreboard is getting away from them a bit and they're trying to 
forced things, but there's, but there's still moments such as the Teje choke tackle or when, when your Nashman comes in for a rip on someone or the, the Ben Spencer grubber into someone's ankles, which then turns into an Andy Christie penalty turnover, like where you're just kind of, I think you lose a bit of goodwill and patience there if you're a, if you're a supporter because you're, you're expecting more from, from a group of clearly quite talented players. I, I mean, Charles, what, what's a positive out of this for England? What, what can they take from it? it it's quite hard because the individual errors were so bad. It's, it's quite hard to pick out many things, I guess. Well, I think what they can take from it is certainly that some of those individual errors are quite uncharacteristic. You mean, you know, you look at George Ford passing inaccurately, you know, he's grown into one of England's, if not Europe's, one of leading passing fly halves and him passing inaccurately is, you can't, you can't mitigate for that. Maratoje rarely has a bad game for England and he wasn't at his best yesterday. Um as you've mentioned, he was choked tackled at the end. These the uncharacteristic errors. Ollie Lawrence, how many times has he thrown a pass into touch for Bath mm. this this season? You know, when when trying to locate a teammate, I, I you know I haven't seen it. If it has happened, then 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 fair enough. But so so that's that's certainly a positive. That's I mean it's 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 straw clutching a bit. But the fact that the errors were were on such an individual level and collectively England did at times look better. You look at the some of the first phase stuff and certainly that opening try from Furbank, um, at times England did look better and their phase their phase defence, I suppose, again, wasn't... I know they conceded three tries, but it didn't come from sustained Scottish pressure. Um, so, And the set piece was good. Dan Cole had a good game, didn't he? Um, Genge was... Genge was decent, and the two, they're building a good sort of quartet of props there. Um, I think I think there are positives to take certainly, but I, th- I think we are talking about England in just a more negative and pessimistic tone than potentially we were last week, where we were sort of saying that if they went to Murrayfield and won, then that's three from three. You sort of guaranteed third, maybe second, with the result today. Um, and suddenly your championship's looking completely different. But, you know, they, they were 10-0 up after... England were 10-0 up after 16 minutes and looked the better side, really, for the, for the opening 16 minutes. And they it almost looked as if, you know, there was only one team who was going to win that game. And then they conceded 27 points to six in the ensuing half an hour or whatever it was, and, and it was gone. And then... And then by the end, I mean, we, we've chatted a bit about this already privately, but I just couldn't believe how pedestrian and ponderous they were towards the latter stages of that game when they were chasing it, needing two scores to win. I, I wonder if the Finn Smith misconversion meant that they thought that they couldn't win. Um, you know, not to blame him at all, but obviously that would have got them within seven. And I wonder if they felt that they couldn't, there just wasn't enough time, and that they were playing for a losing bonus point. Because you know, it's all well and good box kicking up the field and having to gain territory and, and and sticking to that sort of strategy. But at some point, you might have to throw a bit of caution to the wind because time time was running out. They didn't have the time to kick and risk losing possession. They needed to play, and they and they didn't, and they didn't seem to even comprehend that or acknowledge that or even. Maybe they don't have it. In, maybe they don't feel like they've got it in their locker. Um, but you know, when they were chasing the game in those last ten minutes, I think from about the seventy-third 
minute onwards, it, it, it felt as though England thought they were going to lose. And even when they were getting penalties, there was there was not a lot of urgency to, to kick to the corner. Um, I mean, I know, it's again, it's, it's clutching at straws a bit, but you were just sort of there watching it going, why are you not all moving a little bit quicker, given that time is running out? And it felt like you had a bit of momentum when Emmanuel Feywoboso came on and scored that great try. It felt like they were building something. They might not have gone and won, but it felt like that the, the, you know, the, there was a spark there. And it just it fizzled out. I thought I thought that um, I've written about Faye so I think he's got a start in at least one of the next two games. I think George Martin offered them a bit off the bench, um, but it's bizarre. I've been trying to sort of get my head around it ever since it happened this game because there's so so much as ever so much content in a Test match, right? And actually, what England will say is that with the box kicking and why they would have stuck to it at the end is because it was presenting them with opportunities because they Freeman and um, Daly to a lesser extent and then Faye were both when he came on were getting up contesting and that was an area that they're putting pressure on Scotland um, in um, but there are a couple of things wrong with it one is that do they have the pace and the alertness and the skills to then strike off those off those loose balls that they're that they're winning back I don't think so I don't think they really have since since Johnny May was in his pomp um, when sort of around sort of 2017, 2020, they were really good at at striking and and sort of off turnover and off those, in those kick battles. I think they they will aim to get back towards that. And then the second thing is just when it look, when it is inaccurate and the chase isn't well coordinated, it looks really bad and sucks energy out because it is just almost like a free hit. It's almost just giving the ball back very, away very easily. So there was a bit of that, um, going on but that's what I mean about with the kick with the kick battle going well the scrummaging being sort of fine um and then with the phase defense okay um they can see the three tries sort of lightning bolts as the is the um sort of the trendy term isn't it with all of that going wrong and then you add in the add, sorry all of that going sort of okay and then you add in the handling errors it's, it's still quite hard to judging them the, the, the kind of the kind of um I was looking forward to the game because it would be. I really felt like it, we would really learn a lot either way. You know, it would be like a step. It would be a step forward if they won, and it I would. I believe it would have been one of the best, probably the maybe just behind that Argentina win in the World Cup. I still, yeah. I think over the next two weeks we'll really see whether they're treading water and even going backwards, or there is meaningful progress there. Did we? Um, did we curse Henry Slade slightly by stressing his importance in the in the blitz defence? And then, given what happened with the first try, where he kind of is the one who gets suckered in, and then the hole is left for, for Hugh Jones to go through. I mean, that, that was one thing that kind of leapt out watching it back. Um, and just a just a general point about the attack. It, I I know this is a this is a topic that we seem to bang on about every week. It is I, I do genuinely believe that not a lot of attention must be being put on it. And that everything must be going on the defence in other areas at the moment because with a longer picture, just because it's so blindingly obvious what they're doing with each attack. The, the apart from the first phase try for Furbank, which was packed with lots of lovely bits of deception, which I've seen many people say is probably England's best try for. I don't know. I think I saw a few people saying going back to the 2019 semi final. I don't against New Zealand. I don't necessarily disagree. It was very well executed. Everything else is just very straightforward. Like if they're passing one out to a forward, there's no kind of deception behind. There's no there's no kind of dummy runners. There's no kind of mi- mixing and matching like you would get when you watch Ireland. It's he might as well be attached to the stadium tannoy saying, "I'm getting the ball. 
and I'm going to run it straight ahead into contact. Like I do, I can see why people are getting a bit frustrated with that. Is that fair, Charlie? Or am I being a bit overly critical? No, I think it certainly feel, it certainly feels like I would go. I would be as strong as say it feels like the attacks an afterthought at the minute, and it feels like and with um, what why Martin and Faye were both so stood out was because of the intensity they brought in the carrier that had been so so kind of patently missing. And um, I know Martin Martin had that um, that mistake from a restart, which was which is so sloppy from England not to be ready for a quick restart. I think it happened twice. It's just that's that's just where Finn Russell has sort of been toying with them over the years. Just that he just seems to be one step ahead, but it's kind of excuse inexcusable that he is that one step ahead because it really should England should be far more tuned in collectively. Um, but it was almost like Scotland were a little bit surprised by the the intensity that Fayo Boso brought as well, because for that for that try, it's not hugely, you know, it's not intricate at all really. But it, it shows that he's worked all the way across from his the opposite wing and and has and has cut a really nice angle. And and I, I th- he barely got touched by Redpath on the way through. Um, Fayo Boso was kind of a bright spark for another um, quite nice set piece strike, but then that fizzled out. Um, but that but again. It was quite funny afterwards. Um, it's a little bit of a loaded question. Gregor Townsend got asked about England's attack. You know, what? How do you think they're sort of progressing? And and he was very complimentary. Gregor Townsend said, "No, no, they they attack well today." Um, but I think he could say that safe in the knowledge that his his defence was well on top for large periods after that first fifteen minutes. Yeah, I was going to say at one point, Ellis Genge and Dan Cole were at scrum half and first receiver respectively, which means you've got your two props in phase play attack essentially playing nine and ten, um, which is what most sort of community rugby clubs would do when they go on tour. Um, you know, they'd put their two props as a joke at, at scrum half and fly half. And, and and that's what England ended up with in phase play at one point. And it didn't seem like it was deliberate or uh, a tactical ploy, let's say. Just on a more positive attacking moment, if you had to... Uh... Pick a favourite between Van der Merwe's try last year at Twickenham and the second yesterday. Which would you go for? I'd probably lean towards last year, but they're both. How nice to have the two of them in your on your CV, I guess. I'd lean. I'd lean towards last year as well, just because he had he had he had he had more people to beat, didn't he, and more to do. The the one yesterday was just more of a foot race, which you know it still took a lot of finishing. I'm not taking anything away from him; it still took a real lot of finishing. But last year. There was there was swerving. There was you know a bit of a pirouette. There was beating defenders with a step. There was that very very humiliating handoff on Alex Dombrant as he went over, and it required some finishing last year. The, the, his second one last year was a, a, an awesome team move. Just like bags of conviction, bags of skill about Scotland. The the second one yesterday, I still I still think that number one last year is the best. But the second one yesterday. Um, gets better the more you watch it because he absolutely he beats Ben Earl. He makes Ben Earl look unathletic, which is quite difficult to do. Ben Earl is Ben Earl's a supreme athlete and he gets he's flat footed, he gets nowhere near him, then burns Henry Slade and Tommy Freeman does pretty well to get across and keep him in that corner, but um didn't matter because Finn Russell was um kicking really well, so it's seven points. But no, he's um special player, special finisher. The quality of Hugh Jones' pass as well. I just wanted to flag for that. I thought the way he got that, got that out under pressure was so good. And it does have a falcon as part of it. So does that edge it ahead? I don't know now. Now I need to. I need to reevaluate. I need to. 
made you think about it. Do you remember last year when everyone was joking about Carl Stain getting the assist for the for the Duhan try, given he'd literally just passed it from the kick? That would, I mean, you <laughs> Jones did slightly more this year. What about the World Cup with um, with with Marler and Laws? With when Marler literally headbutted <laughs> the ball forward for Laws to score the World Cup. Maybe that's what Furbank was going for. A repeat. Well, listen, we're in an age of law trials. I think Falcon try assist should be worth more. So I'm going to petition that and I'll let you know if I have any progress. Um, let's chat about the rest of the weekend. Charles, I want to, we'll come to you next, I think. I want to hear what happened uh, in Lille under the roof. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, Charles, you've seen many excellent firework displays and pyrotechnic displays in your time. Where does Lille rank? Top three? It's certainly top three. It was certainly in the top three scariest. I about jumped out of my seat and worse, which I will leave to the imagination. <laughs> you can't leave it there. That is that is terrible. I've got I've got to leave it there because I can't go into more info on 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 a, on a respectable podcast is, such as is this. Is this your way of saying please ask me about the game? Yes, and also uh, we had we would be given no warning that there was going to be those sort of gunshot firework. It was all indoors as well, as we know. The roof was closed, so it echoed around. It was even louder, even more, um, yeah, terrifying. Really, was the only word for it. I mean, fireworks at the start, fireworks at the end. I think I think there was Italy celebrating a almost sort of semi celebrating a draw and France somewhat embarrassingly really given you know many had them me included as pre-tournament favorites were semi-celebrating not losing against Italy um in a match where they went 10-0 up after nearly as many minutes and again a bit like the England game yesterday um it, it looked like it could be I mean, not quite like England, but it looked like it could be a really long day at the office for Italy. It looked like it could be sort of 40 50, a bit like at the World Cup when they won by, I think, 53 points. Um, 
And in the end, they were clinging on by the skin of their teeth. Um, yeah, I mean, some of their exec- their intent to execution ratio, which is a thing that I've just made up, but their <laughs> intent to execution ratio is completely th- was completely through the floor. I mean, they they made England look like paragons of efficiency and and ruthlessness and accuracy. I mean, honestly, I, I cannot the the amount of opportunity spurned in that first half it was just it was gobsmacking like it was properly properly alarming it was comfortably the worst performance of the Fabian Gaultier era and I have written in a somewhat partridge way maybe you you two might say in my report that when Fabian Gaultier took over after the 2019 World Cup it was heralded as the nouvelle vague um, of French rugby you know harking back to um Harking back to that, uh, to the to the to the film movement. Well, in Lille, it was Nouvelle Gag. <laughs> I mean, only only Pasolo Twalangi and um, Francois Cross emerged with even a thread of credit. I think from that game, um, the rest of them, like yeah, I think they all need to really have a long hard look at themselves. Some of the some of the decision making that that Damien Peno flick inside to Matisse Lavelle in the first half. What on earth? Why? I just I, I was just sitting there thinking, what are you doing? Like these these were world class. We, we were we were talking about these players in World Fifteen contention last year, and now they've got uh, one win from three Six Nations matches, and they've played, uh, and the win was you know by the skin of their teeth as well. And they look completely lost and bereft of ideas. Is it a Dupont thing? Probably, maybe. But there's enough class there whereby they you know, they shouldn't be drawing to that. Italy, Italy were, meet, were missing a couple of the best of their best players themselves. I'm glad you mentioned Penno because I was watching him um, and and sort of thought that his struggles in in this whole Six Nations actually seemed to be an embodiment of, of France's. Uh, confusion and loss of direction because he had a little chip over the top, didn't he? Which he basically shinned straight out on the full when France were attacking down the right. And you just thought, you're not doing that 12 months ago. You're not doing that two years ago. Like that's when you're, those are the chances we expect you to suddenly make something out of nothing and score tries from, not to, you know, be putting them out on the full. I'm glad you mentioned Tulagi because I thought he was, I thought he was great. And he sort of, he was part of that first 20 minute, um, a barrage, essentially, wasn't it? In Italy's 22, where they looked, actually, maybe maybe it was because the roof was shut and the noise sounded quite impressive on TV. They just looked like a side who, who Francis is. who were just playing angry. Like, I thought they would, there was so much aggression and so much, like, full throttle carries into contacts. Was it, was it Wokey maybe had that, like, mad dive for the for, to score by the post where he didn't quite get there about three or four minutes in? Like, they were... They were playing hot, and I kind of thought, I'll be honest, yeah, I thought they were going to win by at least 30 points. But then... They were much more direct, much more route one, yeah. and, it, and it was paying off. Yeah, and and then they just kind of... Yeah, they looked a little bit... <laughs> they looked a little bit England-like. It sounds like we're really just bagging England's attack. But like they, they did look a little bit England-like in terms of they were in the position and it didn't look like they really knew what to do in terms of how to finish off of chances. Um Let's, I mean, yeah. I think it was all summed up by Galtier 
Fabien Galtier. I mean, we, we, I didn't get a chance to ask him this afterwards because he didn't want to uh, hang around for very long in the press conference afterwards. But I wonder if if Charles Olivon, his captain, was not injured, then that has to be one of the most insane tactical substitutions replacements in probably the history of French rugby to take off your captain, your open side at 65 minutes with a score in the game to bring on a debutant. Like we were sitting there in the press box, just going, what on earth is going on here? This is, this is a, this is a, this is a replacement that you make when you're 20 points clear, when the game is done and you still arguably don't take your captain off to do it. And he, so it, it, and Olivon ran off though. <laughs> he ran off unaided. So there, there has been a suggestion that he wasn't injured, which is just, I mean, that sums it all up. I mean, it just seemed like their the complete meltdown plot loss today. Is, um, is Jalibert tournament over? What was, what was his prognosis? The, the, honestly, the, the, they were in and out so quickly, Galtier, and all the questions were sort of about, is this a crisis for France that I don't, he wasn't even asked. He wasn't even asked about Jalibert. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. He 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 really didn't say much afterwards. Galtier. Uh, he just said he's not angry. Um, but all of the questions from the French media who had assembled were quite venomous. Was yeah, was just saw something. Saw genou gauche somewhere. So left knee. I mean, I'll be. It didn't look very. Didn't look very fancy, did it? Um, the Dante red card. Red card, Charles. I don't think there's any argument there, is there? Um, and nope. and a bit a bit of a disappointment as well because this isn't the first time we've had chats about France and red cards for tackles and yeah. What do you think? But yes, yeah, the second in three games. It was an absolute stone wall. Red when it happened. I I think I I wrote in our a submission to our blog, um, and. Um, Saying that it's going to be it's going to be upgraded, like there was just no no question, there was no mitigation. It was, and at that point, Italy went into the half the half time break, trailing only by seven points because they kicked that long range penalty from the Dante penalty. And after France had seventy seven percent possession in the first half, and were leading by seven points at the break, and they dominated ter- territory as well. I don't have the exact percentage, but they dominated territory. Um, and then it all came down to really a, a Garbisi kick at the end, um, which was the other big talking point of the of the press conference afterwards. Because obviously the ball fell off the tee. Um, he, he hit the post, but he was rushed by um, Christoph Ridley, the English referee, who was on his first um, Six Nations game. When the ball fell off the tee, um, everyone was a bit confused. The French players encroached the ten meters because they thought that they could charge down. They couldn't. They sort of semi-retreated and they'd stopped advancing towards Garbisi, but the shot clock was ticking. It was running down. Garbisi then had to rush his penalty attempt and those French players were still within the 10. Uh, I mean, he hit the post, so it was a pretty good effort anyway. And there's nothing to say that he would have got it had it been retaken. But I think certainly Italy feel like the kick maybe should have been retaken. Um, What I would say is, is that I thought that Christophe was awesome really really refereed really really well even if you know there are, there are obviously question marks about that 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 last minute um 
that last minute penalty, that long range penalty. But I thought he had the um, refereeing performance of the weekend. Well, well Charles, we have a, a flaming, flaming hot tape from uh, post match with you chatting to Italy's defence coach Marius Goosen about that. So let's uh, let's hear about that now. Massively proud, obviously, for the effort that the, that the boys um, put out there against a quality side. Um, but when you get, come so close, then you want you want the grand prize at the end of the day. Unfortunately, we couldn't pull it through at the end. But um, me as a defence coach and, and, and our, the whole coaching staff, massively proud with the, uh, with the boys, uh, uh, the way they, they went about it. I was going to say, you must be very, very um, proud of the, of the first half defensive effort with all the possession and territory that France had to restrict them to 10 points and to go into the break just seven points tr- behind. Yeah, no, definitely. They obviously had us under the pump straight away in the game. Um, we gave away that try quickly, and then from there on, we just hung in there. Um, and we knew if we could, if we could um, stay in the game, especially with um, the last 20 minutes, um, we will have a good chance because I think we had a team that worked really hard around the park, and we felt we can outwork them, and, and it showed at the end, basically. And can you talk us through that fabulous try that got you right back in it, scored by Ange Capuazzo, the, the hero in Cardiff as well. He's, he, he, he seems to sort of enjoy scoring big tries in big games. Yeah, look, uh, it, it, it's become a little bit of our DNA of, of playing the way that we want to play um, since two years ago or 18 months ago. Um, and we always back ourselves if we, if we create a bit of momentum and with ball in hand. And, and we definitely have some, some players in the back line that can make a difference and score those type of tries. So, so it, it had to be Kapoza to score it again. So <laughs> it would have been a fairy tale ending if we could have won that again. And that, and that final penalty, um, what was going through your mind? Um, any qualms over France not being back 10 metres or do you think that it was a fair enough attempt with the shot clock going down and him and Paolo Garbisi hitting the post? Yeah, obviously, I mean, it's always easy in hindsight to, to look at things. Um, if you look at back at it now, then definitely the kick should have been given again. Um, but... I mean, we all know in that in that situation, pressure cooker, especially with the ref as well, it's not that easy to make the right call always. That's why I say always, it's easy in hindsight to, um, in hindsight, it should have been given again. Um, but I mean, there's no complaints at the end of the day. And want to chat more about Italy and, and just kind of positives here. Charles, you had a, a lovely interview last week with Ross Vincent. I hope I've said that right. And And... Made sure all the T's are present and correct. Who was making his first start at number eight, and was great, wasn't he? I mean, you've got Vincent, you've got Menoncello, you've got Brex. Brex isn't young, but he's been around for a while. But he was awesome. I thought Nicotero was great at hooker. Lamoureux, obviously. Like this was such a, a nice improvement from what we saw in Dublin, I guess. And it was always going to be, wasn't it? What What did you like most about Italy? I just lo- I love the f- but this, n- there was nothing new that we saw today in terms of the fluidity and the the purposeness of their attack. Um, it was it's just so purposeful, um, and, and and Brex is just such a classy player when they when they have him there in terms of running that running that wrap around with Garbisi and that blind pass off his shoulder to Garbisi wrapping around quite late. It unlocked France several times um uh, and menoncello arrived on the scene a wing they moved him to 12 didn't they maybe he might end up going back 
to the wing because if they're going to bring him off his wing as much as they they did today, then you might as well have him out there because he's such a threat and he's so strong. I mean, to think you've got you've got um, Canone, the number eight, um, to bring back into that team. You've got Seb Negri to bring back into that team. And yeah, you're right. Vincent was had a match for the ages. I wrote his first Test start at number eight. He was he was better than Francois Cross, and he was and, and Cross was one of France's best. Charlie, any thoughts from you on on the game? Anything you saw? I loved how mad it got at the end, um, and there was there was a, when France were pushing. I think it was thirteen all. When France were pushing and knocked it on, and Italy just went a phase or went a couple of phases, and then Garbisi cleared, and it just bounced bounced just before the touchline. Um, I thought those two phases that they went to look, and I know they're playing against 14 men, but I just love that that's maybe the kind of mix of what Crowley kind of brought in that real kind of um, that real conviction about attack and attacking in transition. Um, and then they've had a look, but then goes to the boot. And that's re- that's just really encouraging. And as Charles says to do it with, a, without, you know, without Canoni, without Negri in, in that back row, real kind of big, big carriers, big focal carriers for them. Really, really impressive. What did strike me was the penalty that France gave up. Just reminded me of that Netflix quote from from Sean Edwards in uh, in Franklish when he's saying, "Yeah, when it's in the when it's in our half, kick the ball." But um, that was funny as well because it was like France France are in a vice. Yeah, but it was it was like we're we're drawing with Italy. We can't that can't happen. So we better run away out of here. And uh, Giuliani, was it Giuliani that got the um, got the turnover? Oh, he's, he's awesome at that. So um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's kind of, I think it maybe maybe was a kind of result that tournament needed a bit, and hopefully, as a we're just bang for a bit of a, another surprise, aren't we? Definitely. Have you seen anyone panic as much as Yoram Mofana when that ball hit the post? I mean, what on earth was he doing? Because if they wanted to take the draw, then just kick it out, and if you want to try and go the length and win. Don't run towards the touchline. So he was just, it was just completely panic. Just sprinted off towards the touchline. I thought he was going to carry on and go down the tunnel. He's had a a lively tournament. And just before we we move on to Ireland Wales, Charles, you might not have seen this, but ITV had probably the best um, TV moment of the tournament so far where they had, they showed what their pundits were doing during the final kick. And you basically had Sergio Parise embracing Benjamin Kayser in what looked like quite a warm, affectionate hug, is and just their faces as the last kick unfolded was um, was uh, yeah made for great TV. Um, Alan Wales, just to finish off this section before we do some questions, one of you play interviewer and pepper me with with questions about what happened in Dublin. What happened in Dublin? Wow, I mean, I probably don't need to worry about my role then. Um, what happened in Dublin is that Ireland Ireland have played three games have a points difference of plus 81 and a maximum 15 out of 15 points. Now, I I think the first half was was actually really interesting because Wales, and I know this sounds might sound a bit ridiculous if you see the scoreline and didn't see the game, Wales did actually defend really well. And part of the reason for this was that they just didn't put anybody's in the ruck. And, and so what that meant was that, as, or as, as much as they could, not do that they just wanted to fan the defense out and so that meant that when Ireland sort of went into the bag of tricks and they had decoy runners and and different pods and were um, running those misdeception attacks which we 
all enjoy watching so much and which is so effective, it meant that Wales kind of had the bodies to contain it. And actually, Ireland, for a lot of the first half, were just going sideline to sideline, looking for a hole, not really finding it. And then Tommy Raphael would, would pounce for a turn of a penalty or, or Ireland would knock on. And and I think they were genuinely frustrated. And I think that I think that kind of fed into the crowd a little bit in the first half because they obviously were expecting a bit of a, a, a trouncing given the quality that Ireland have at the moment and the quality that Wales are, are trying to build. So that was really interesting. And, Ar- and Ireland did eventually crack that because they, they just got more purchase out of their direct ball carriers and Wales did have to commit more bodies to the rack and the, and the space a bit. Um, so, that, so that was quite interesting. And, and Wales can weirdly also feel positive about performances by Cam Winnett at fullback, who, who I think looks the real deal, which is great. But Rio Dyer was really sparky coming off his wing. Rafael, like I mentioned before, is comfortably the best best player in this Wales side and um, just, just magnificent again. But Wainwright was quite sparky with his ball carrying. Yeah, I mean, I saw a lot of grumbling about, from a Welsh perspective, about Andrew Porter's kind of scrummaging angle. You can quibble about it. It's not going to change the outcome of the game. Like Ireland, we're going to find a way potentially to win this. Yeah, it was an odd one. It was an odd one. And actually, the biggest roar from the crowd probably came when Wales got that penalty try and it, and it became 17-7. That seemed to wake the crowd up a bit. And that was the loudest the, the stadium kind of was all afternoon. And Ireland obviously went on to, to get the bonus point win. But yeah, funny game. Funny game, actually. What the, the sentiment is towards Wales is rebuild, given how explicitly kind of... Um, Back to the drawing board, it's been not back to the drawing board, but you know what I mean. So a, a total kind of clean slate, as opposed to England, who've tried to mix and match experience with these new faces and are hoping the experience helps them. Wales maybe haven't had that option because of the wholesale re- re- retirements. You mentioned Cam Winnett, Aaron Wainwright, I guess, would be one of the sort of more senior figures. But how 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 do you feel public sentiment is towards it? Because I feel that the public sentiment towards England is almost less positive. Yeah, I think there's loads of it, but because I think Warren Gatland is has been very upfront about the kind of scale of the job at hand. I mean, I mean, crumbs. Look at his comments last week about um, Welsh rugby kind of being a sinking ship and trying to plug the holes in it. I mean, he said sinking ship in this twice in the same press conference. Like, I think there's no there's no illusion. It's just the the task at hand, and and I think because of that, because expectations are lower, because he's saying that, I think people are more forgiving. Now, expectations with England probably are never going to be that low because everybody will point to the quality of resources and talent and um, and all of those things and coaching staff. So, so I think that's probably a core difference. But I also think it means that people are probably more forgiving of Wales getting thumped thirty-one-seven if they can see someone like Cam Winnett play really well at fullback. I mean, Cam Winnett's not played many professional games, let alone Test for Wales. So, I think I think that's quite interesting. Which and just on Ireland. Um, I think actually Andy Farrell probably would have, would have enjoyed having a bit of a attacking conundrum to solve um, just going into the next two games just because it's another test for them. It's another thing they found their way around. I mentioned Brian Baird earlier. He was great. Um, Gibson Park is just fantastic scrum half. Um, my love for Bundyaki is, is well known, but I just thought he was sensational. There was a lovely moment where he and Henshaw combined for a penalty turnover. Um and actually, a Henshaw knock on denied Bundyaki a try in the second half as well. Like I, 
they're, they're just so complete, Ireland. Calvin Nash and Kieran Frawley, a, a wing and fullback, have slotted in seamlessly. And yeah, I I, I think we'll, we won't get into England Ireland stuff too much, but yeah, obviously they're, they're streets ahead, aren't they? I think both of you would agree with that. Yeah, can you see can you see the Irish apple cart being upset at all with the two games remaining, England and Scotland? Is are we talking a, a Grand Slam procession? I mean, I wish I wish Scotland had put France away at half time, based on what we've seen out of France today, as in Sunday, and um, and just how good they are as a team. Because how great would it be if we had Grand Slam decider? Um, on the final day. Also, how hilarious would it have been if we'd had a Grand Slam decider and then they'd had to go to Lyon to do France v England as the late game when every, all the focus had been on the middle of the afternoon. Um, yeah. I, I, no, I can't. I think they're too good. They're too good and the depth is too good. The coaching's too good. Um, and I, I don't believe... We'll, we'll talk more about England next week. But yeah, they're, they're head and shoulders above the rest at the moment. Right, let's get into some of your questions. Right, everybody, thanks for your questions. Thank you for sending them in a day early as well. Much appreciated. Uh, We're going to kick off with one from Chris, who says, has initial indecision in selection created a situation whereby Borthwick has to toss the younger players to the Wolves by giving them first starts against Ireland and France? So basically, because of where England are, do they now need to give younger guys... A go. Um, I was actually quite surprised how early Finn Smith came on yesterday, which maybe kind of pointed towards that feeling that maybe actually England feel need to give these guys a, a bit more time. And I think we're all in agreement that Faber Boso should probably start. I mean, I'd start him in both games. I, I don't see, don't see why not. Charlie, what do you think? Would you, would you? Well, firstly, who would you bring in? And and I guess is is that the direction England should go down? Um, that's a really interesting question. There are a few, there are a few kind of strands to it. I think I'd I'd like Feyoboso to start. Um, I just think he's shown enough. He, he showed enough, of, as we've said, enough kind of athleticism, but also nuts and bolts to his kind of positioning and stuff to to really get another chance to learn on the on the job. I'd start Martin, um, whether that's keeping Itoji and Chesham, um, and maybe moving Chesham to six or 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 putting another. Six there, maybe maybe Roots or Pearson was at six for the A team, wasn't he? Which was quite interesting. Um, there are a few strands here. So the first one is that I think the new players have earned both through training and both through those assured cameos. The most assured cameo, the, the guys who've made the most assured cameos are the most likely to start. So in that respect, they've. I don't think they would be being thrown to the wolves because they they would have earned they would have earned that. The second thing is that. Um, there are no easy opportunities to blood these players this year. It's a really tough year for England. I think the the two uh, inverted commas from here easier games are Japan away and then Japan at Twickenham, and the rest are against um, so- Southern Hemisphere sides, either either at home or away in New Zealand. So uh, not easy, not particularly um, sympathetic for debutants. And then the other thing is, I think it's um, what's made the decision more difficult. Is that are the performances more than the um, policy in the first place? Because otherwise, you'd be doing what Wales um, were doing and, and giving it a total clean slate and almost throwing an entire side to the wolves. And I think 
Gatland was more inclined to do that because of his experience, because of maybe that Wales had overachieved at the World Cup with um, with that win over Australia and getting out of a, what looked like quite a tricky group. Um, we know that this Borthwick rebuild has kind of been in two parts with the World Cup as a kind of almost siloed off um, and, and England opting for all-out experience because that was, they thought, the best way to do it I, I think I think that this kind of um hybrid style of of what Borthwick is going for this this time is is really interesting I wrote in the in the piece on the, on the website that I think um mistakes from quite senior players have maybe given him mandate to accelerate that process um and maybe and maybe just and maybe just that means starts for Martin Feo Boso um maybe Spencer as well um and I'd like to see Chantal Cunningham start uh, south if not start one of the next two day- games and certainly get more significant minutes off the bench. And then I think if th- those guys go well, um, you're looking at a side that you've transformed a bit. Charles, anything to add to that? Not really. I I, I, I agree with everything that Charlie said. I think that the initial indecision in selection, as you said, is a little, maybe a little bit harsh and a little bit disingenuous because, of course, he had his, you know, his starting halfbacks in his, in his dream have, have also been... Have also been ruled out. His starting fly half has been ruled out for the first three games. We don't know when he's going to be back. Um, so, uh, and obviously there have been midfield issues in terms of the centres' availability as well. Um, there was George Martin, who we know almost definitely would have started that the first two games had he been fit. Uh, Genj too, presumably if he had been fully fit. Um, so in many respect, in many in many aspects, in many respects, he was sort of backed into a corner, really, Borthwick, and he's uh, and he's made the best of best of what he's got. Um, having said that, I, I do think that it's not really throwing them as Charlie suggested. I mean, France away at the minute is looking. I mean, we would never have said this a month ago, but France away is looking probably like England's sort of third easiest game this year from what's for what's left yeah. um, to play. Um, given the state of France at the minute, so actually, you know, you you you, you wouldn't be sort of too concerned about Faye Waboso and, and and George Martin and, and and maybe Chandler Cunningham South starting those starting those games. I mean, Faye Waboso off the bench just he didn't look like he'd been chucked to the wolves at all. He looked himself. He looked a wolf himself. He was he was breaking through. T- I think every time he every time he touched the ball, he broke a tackle. Um, Scott and barely laid a finger on him for his try. He, the, the way he chased that restart, uh, I think it was the first his, his first restart when he came on the field. He was like an, an X-set missile. He, he looked like sort of a cheat code, and I don't think it's uh, I don't think he'd be thrown to any wolves. I think he looks ready. Just you mentioning Wales there, there Charlie, has made me think about the contrast between Jamie George as captain and, and Dad Jenkins as captain. Of Wales and how obviously how obvious it is that Wales want a new young captain and just to to build around them. I don't necessarily know who England would have gone for if they'd gone for a young captain, but you could have had a young captain and then kept all the likes of George and Tony J and 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 you you can keep that kind of leadership core around that younger captain. I just wonder who I can't think who that would have been. There's like an obvious person. So yeah, maybe something to think about. Um, uh, other question we had from Nathan was England <laughs> oh I, I read it as England need a new attack coach but that's not right it's do England need a new attack coach and then he mentions Sam Vesti 
um, Sam Vesti probably because England Day, England Day beat, beat Portugal 91-5 today. I, I think you can take absolutely the barest of minimum from it, given the Portuguese opposition. I, I almost almost makes me annoyed that it's kind of listed as, as England Day Portugal because it's not the Portugal that from the World Cup which we really enjoyed. But anyway, sorry, Charles, you got you, you got your hand up. What are you saying? Can I can I just say that in that game today that I watched in just before France Italy, I saw one of the most you know rarest and most remarkable things I've seen on a rugby field in a long time. England's scrum dominance was such that um, at one stage um, they put into the scrum um, Portugal put into the scrum on their own five meter line and. England demolished the scrum with such ferocity that the ball flew out the back of the Portugal scrum and the English front row had splintered and destroyed Portugal so much that Joe Hayes, the tight head prop, touched down the ball over the line, which I've never, ever seen before. That is scrum dominance to the point where your tight head prop is free to score. It was given as a penalty try in the end, but he was robbed. He was robbed. Poor Joe. Doesn't deserve that. Um, it, but sorry, let's go back to the question. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It, it was based on the theme of doing the need a new attack coach. Vesti's name was mentioned. Mike Cat's name was mentioned because he is leaving the Irish setup um, in the near future. Charlie, do they need a new attack coach? Or, or is that just hasty? They, they haven't shown meaningful progress in, in that area, I don't think. Um, which is, you know, which is probably going to be tough, you know, to hear for for Richard Wigglesworth. But he's, you know, he's he's tight with uh, Steve Borthwick. He'll they will have a plan to roll this out over the next. They have, I guess, the the, the signs of progress that they've shown are a more a willingness to kind of move the ball, spread it through the hands, um, play to width a little bit more as they did in in Italy. Um, but I, I guess I guess convincing progress is a better is a better way of of putting it. I wouldn't say that that's been there, but then they've also had the combinations and the and the mix up. There, so the mix ups, you know, the inevitable inevitable with with injuries and things like that. Um, yeah, Mike Cat is that's an intriguing. He was more as we've said about this before. I think Andy Farrell is the guy who's responsible for the most impressive aspects of Ireland's attack, but. Um, what England could do with really and what we thought they had a little bit with Andrew Strawbridge coming in was a, a kind of focus on skills that seemed to be kind of um, not great glaringly missing <laughs> yeah glaringly missing at Murrayfield so um, yeah they'll be looking for they'll be looking for improvements for sure I think Wigglesworth deserves a little bit more time as well, doesn't he? Because he wasn't there during the Six Nations last year. I know this is, we're getting a bit worn out record levels with us saying, you know, pleading patience and saying that England deserve more time. But I think for him specifically, he only came in for the World Cup. He's only been in, in, in situ since the World Cup or the build up to the World Cup. So I think for him, he, des- he does deserve a little bit more patience. But but the clock is ticking. In fact, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, we we did have one more question from Gavin. But Gavin, this is a cop out. You asked, is the Peniassi Dakivaka try for Stefan So, which has been doing the rounds, the best solo effort ever? We haven't got enough time to discuss it, and we're now going to have a week to look up the best solo tries ever, and we'll come back to you next week. And we'll let you know because I personally need more time. 
to have a look at some tries. But it will be the best of this season. It'll be, yeah, it'll be the best this season. That is it for today, though. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charles. Um, and thanks to everybody for downloading the podcast. There's plenty more fallout from England's defeat against Scotland and lots of reaction to the weekend as we go through this week. All on the Telegraph website and also plenty of build-up to the clash against Ireland next week as well and the other Six Nations games. So lots to get stuck into. Until then, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.